Welcome, my curious souls, and thank you for joining us today. You are listening to What's That Haint, a podcast that takes the myths and legends of the paranormal, dissects it down, and provides you the real evidence and research associated with ideas of the paranormal to allow you to not only identify these entities, but to better care for your own cosmic energy. And by the way, welcome to season two. I am Mountain Mama, and this podcast is ran by Mountain Mama Investigations, a Appalachian high strangeness and paranormal research team dedicated to the preservation of historical locations with a focus in Appalachia and aiding those in paranormal crisis. We are a nonprofit organization, meaning any support you provide through listening to this podcast or following us on social media allows us to fundraise for materials and services needed in private paranormal crisis cases. In addition, it allows us to go out to these historical locations as we work to bring interest to them as we want them to thrive for future generations to enjoy. Our other main goal is to do our part to help break the barriers and stigma around the paranormal and experiencing it. A bit about myself. I'm a spiritual practitioner and medium working in the areas of Reiki, chakras, tarot, and parapsychology. My certifications are in each of those areas, and I use these in individual healing sessions and in paranormal investigations. I work in what is called the old ways, and am constantly looking to find a better way to life and to work to become the best version of me. I also dabble in Akashic Records and all things that may be considered woo-woo. Always feel free to reach out if you have a question, because all are welcome here. With this being said, I am not a medical practitioner. If you are undergoing any type of physical or emotional stress that needs medical attention, then we support you in doing so. We would never tell you not to. Some of you may be wondering what a haint is. Haint is a term that has been used in various parts of the world. But for myself, it was used largely in my hometown and area of eastern Kentucky. Haint is a common word used in Appalachia to describe a spirit or ghost or anything related to the paranormal or supernatural. This is why it was normal in Appalachia to paint their porches haint blue, as many folks worked on ways to rid their homes of these entities. In this season, we are branching out into the more mystical and magical energies of Appalachia, with Appalachian-specific entities. We are going to chase the lore and legends of those long before us, and the creatures and spirits that they experienced. Don't worry, because the misty mountains of Appalachia never disappoint. It's a starry night, and the air smells and feels like freedom. A time where you can look up at the night sky and not only imagine that any dream you have could come true, but just knowing that it will. You smile as you take notice of this sky while making your exit from your favorite bookstore. You had leafed through so many novels with that familiar scent of old book that only a true bookworm loves. The live jazz band playing in the corner of the shop and 
hot coffee being sold and passed around, there was something for all to enjoy in there tonight. You love this local shop. It may even be one of your most favorite places on the planet. You know it's time to get back to your apartment, which is thankfully within walking distance. You have your new book treasures held tightly to your chest, and you make your way down the street. It's a Friday night, so there is a bit more sound on the streets of your small town, but still nothing compared to larger cities. You pause for a moment on your way as you pass by a recently constructed memorial. A picture lays gently against a post where lighted candles have been placed for the last few weeks, with trinkets left in remembrance and in honor of. You are not sure who or how many loving humans have been tending to this, yourself included, but you can feel the overwhelming sense of love that comes from it. You look at the picture of the young woman and her eyes look back at you. You felt her not only to be an anchor of this community with the years of service she provided in her position of librarian, but you also remember her as a friend. You think back about the moments you shared while uncovering new historical discoveries of your town and the late night history making sessions in the archives. You nod toward her in gratitude and begin walking back down the street toward that warm apartment waiting for you. These books are getting heavy, so you decide to take the shortcut down an alley by the local antique shop. You pause as you notice a feeling of being watched. The hair on your arms begin to raise and you know something just ain't right. You look behind you and see nothing. You whip back around to start your journey again and then you are face to face with an eerie and partially translucent face. You freeze right where you are while you take in what you are seeing what you think you are. The face, the person, it's familiar. Hold up. That can't be. Is this the woman you just looked into the eyes of on that poster? Your friend whom you know you attended the funeral of. She tells you that she has to be quick, but she needs your help. Her death. It was not an accident. She quickly recaps a story of foul play, and then just as quickly as she was there, she is gone. You take a deep breath, and you ask yourself, what is that hate? have heard some doozies in my day, but this one, this one is bold. This true story that actually took place in West Virginia, I have found myself discussing so many times and using it as an example of significant paranormal inspiration. And it's referred to as the Greenbrier Ghost. 
We know spirits or entities are capable of some incredible things, both good and sometimes bad. But what if I told you that there is a famous case where a residual soul actually solved their own murder? This tale is nothing short of incredible, so let's just jump right in. Now, due to its many versions, West Virginia Explorer magazine worked to reprint this story as it appeared in the New York Sunday America paper. The following account is based on that reprint. I also would like to know that I am not 100% sure on the pronunciations of some of these names, so just bear with me. Elva Zona Hester Shue of Lewisburg, West Virginia, had only been a bride of three months to Edward Shue when she was found dead on January 23, 1897. Living in a log house with her new husband, she was found at the bottom of the stairs that led to the second floor. Her body was discovered by a neighborhood child named Andy Jones, who did chores and errands for Elva. You see, Elva had fell ill during the first days of January. She was under the care of a Dr. J.M. Knapp, and Edward seemed to attend to his bride's needs and even went on January 22nd to the cabin of Aunt Martha Jones. He wanted to see if Andy could do some chores for Miss Shue. Andy could remember this event and remembers his mother telling Mr. Shue that Andy first needed to finish some work for Dr. Knapp. Edward seemed a bit upset, but asked if Andy could go later in the day. Edward Shue came back to the home four times to see if Andy could come help, but he was still busy. Around 1 p.m., Edward came back and Andy agreed to go do the chores. Andy said that when he approached the small two-story frame, that he knew something was wrong. All of the doors were shut and he felt uneasy. Reaching the steps, he saw a trail of blood. He was scared but he continued into the house after there was no answer from knocking. Andy stumbled over the body of Elva. She was lying on the floor looking straight up with eyes wide open, and he said it looked as if she was laughing. Upon finding her, Andy ran to tell his mother and then continued to the blacksmith shop where Edward was working. When he reached Edward, he was with a man named Charles Tapscott. And when Andy told him what he had found, he yelled and Charles also ran with him to the house while Andy ran to get Dr. Knapp. When arriving back at the house, Edward had picked up his wife from the floor and placed her on the bed. He held her head in his arms while crying for her to come back. Dr. Knapp started investigating to see if Elva Shue was still alive and he concluded that it was the everlasting faint and that her heart had stopped. The oddest part that no one seemed to notice at the time was that Edward had dressed Elva in an old-fashioned dress with a high collar during this, a stiff collar of sorts with a scarf to hold it in place. The next morning, Elva's body was taken by Edward and a few neighbors to the home of her mother, Miss Hester. On Monday, she was buried in the family cemetery. In between until the burial, Edward never left Elva's side while others were near. He wouldn't let anyone come near her and he kept guard. He used a folded sheet in a way to keep his wife's head in alignment and straight. I think we all agree we need to look into this Edward's shoe a bit more. 
Edward was originally from Pocahontas County and had come to Greenbrier a short time before the wedding to work at the blacksmith shop. He was described as a towering man of unknown strength and had a striking figure. Another note to mention is that he had been married twice before and both women had died suddenly. Despite this, Elva fell madly in love with him. What happened to Elva? What could have caused this fate for her when otherwise she was to have seemed perfectly healthy? Miss Hester, Elva's mother, would be the key in unlocking this mystery. Please remember that this remarkable next part is not just myth or legend, but actually has the old yellow papers in the Lewisburg Historic Courthouse as proof. Several days after the funeral, Miss Hester was asleep in her little cabin room, but was awoken by a strange noise. She had been seeking answers to her daughter's death in the days after the funeral, and what she was about to experience would help with that. Looking out into the room, she began to see an object. She then realized that the image she was seeing was her daughter. She was wearing the same dress that she had died in, she acted as if she was about to speak, but then she disappeared. The next night before bed, Miss Hester continued her funeral prayers for her daughter. She prayed intensely, asking that her daughter would come back and explain her death, and those cries were answered. When Miss Shue appeared, the next four visits, she began talking more with her mother and talking freely. It was on that fourth visit that she told her mother everything around the mystery of her death, which was that Edward had murdered her. Having this knowledge, Miss Hester set out to trap her son-in-law. This was no easy task, as the first hardship being the time that this even took place. We are still struggling to this day with the stigma that surrounds the paranormal, so imagine how hard that was in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Many neighbors and locals kind of shook their head at the claims of this grieving mother. This isn't to say that they didn't listen to her, because they did, but they just didn't have much stock in what she was saying. I'm sure you can use your imagination on how authorities took this story when she brought it to them. This is the part of the story that fascinates me. Several days of Miss Hester trying to get support, someone believed her. Y'all, see, it takes one person to believe, and then big things can happen. Johnson Hester, a brother-in-law, said that the story had some foundations to it. He went to speak with Edward Shue, and it increased his suspicion. After speaking with Andy and others, it was enough for Miss Hester and her brother-in-law to go to Lewisburg, where they met with the attorney, John Preston. Preston had heard this story, as it was hot off the press around the country. After speaking further, Preston started the process of one of the most unique murder cases of all times. Preston was a well-known and successful attorney, and regardless of how odd this case was, there was confidence in his ability, or, in an Appalachian saying, this case ain't no hill for a climber. Something unheard of in that time happened in Greenbrier County. Preston ordered for the body to be exhumed, and they allowed it. Let, let this sink in. 
based on pretty pretty much just psychic ability or even just the word of someone who had witnessed a paranormal event of an apparition. West Virginia allowed the body of Elva to be exhumed to see if Miss Hester was indeed correct with the visits that she was experiencing from her daughter. I really have to applaud West Virginia on this, because imagine in that time what kind of gumption it would take to have actually followed through with this. They took the body to the schoolhouse in order to examine it. Edward Shue was taken along and required to be present. The physician started the examination and found no signs of poison. Andy Jones was also present during this, and the exam lasted for three days. The physician almost gave up when on the third day he revealed something shocking, and the same thing that Miss Hester told them that her daughter told her during those visits. Shu was still present when it was announced that Miss Shu's neck had been broken. Mr. Shu dropped his head. He was placed under arrest, but taken by authorities to his home, and Elva was placed once again back into her burial place. The next morning, Shu got up, made everyone in the party breakfast, and told them that he was ready to go to jail. He was put in jail without bond, and Shu obtained two attorneys to actually defend him, one being James P.D. Gardner, the first African-American attorney, the first in his race to practice in county court. The courtroom was overwhelmingly full. Miss Hester had the opportunity to recount her dreams as part of the trial and evidence. Attorney Preston stated at the beginning that every bit of evidence that they had was circumstantial. He knew this. But it was unlike anything ever heard of before. He told them that the dream testimony was so important and that he could prove it. He did this by calling in Dr. Knapp, who went over the examination that supported the same dreams that Miss Hester had and the details that came from those. Never before in the history of the American courts had a jury been asked to convict a murder from a dream and communication with the spirit. Think about this for a moment. We have seen in current cases that there have been psychics and those with gifts of seeing into the spirit world that have helped to solve these cases and bring comfort. It really humbles one to know that if those measures could be taken in the time of Elva, then why are we so scared to make this a more acceptable part of a crime case? If the idea is to solve the case, in which my hope is that it would be, then wouldn't that mean taking all modalities to do so, including psychic work? Since the early beginnings of time, there have been questions around these abilities, and although they are very interesting, if we could start asking less on how they happen or why they exist, and just allowing them to happen without judgment, there is a possibility that a lot of good could come of those psychic abilities. If we were able to use those without shame. It becomes so complex. But does the origin of the ability matter more than the result of it? Assisting in a case such as this? Imagine if psychics were just a standard part of investigation teams. Now, back to our story. In court, Andy Jones testified the multiple attempts of Edward Shue wanting him to visit the home for chores. 
Other witnesses stated that Edward was the only one in the home that morning before his wife was found. In addition, more witnesses spoke of the high-collared dress and scarf-type fabric that he wrapped around her neck upon her death. Now came the time for Miss Hester to provide her account of those dreams that led to the solving of this murder. The defense counsel was quick to jump on the dream aspect, but Miss Hester indicated at this point that she had not been dreaming when she spoke with her daughter, but that she was awake as she was in her exact moment of testifying. It was during this testimony that she revealed the details that her daughter gave around her death. Elva told her mother that Edward came home from the shop that night and he seemed angry. She told him that dinner was ready, but he was upset that she had not prepared any meat. She told him that there was plenty to eat and that she had prepared a good supper. She said that Edward flew into a rage and seized her head and dislocated her neck. Miss Hester had never been to the home of her daughter and was able to recount perfectly what the home looked like on the details that her daughter provided during that paranormal encounter. Edward obviously didn't help himself any in court and was found guilty with the court saying there is no middle ground for the jury to take. The verdict inevitably must be murder in the first degree or for an acquittal. Life imprisonment was recommended, but an angry mob made the decision that he should die the same way his wife did. But the sheriff intercepted this effort, and he was taken to Moundsville Penitentiary. Well, I guess this means when we jokingly tell someone in Appalachia that we will come back to haunt them that there is some truth in those words. Elva did not deserve what happened to her, but I admire her contribution to the paranormal world and showing that there are times out there where the truth is stranger than fiction. The dedication to coming back, solving her own murder, and saving future women from her own fate. That is truly remarkable and empowering. In addition, Miss Hester cannot go unnoticed here because she went against the grain. She trusted herself and honestly didn't care what anyone else thought and that determination got justice for her daughter. We are so much more than we give ourselves credit for. Supernatural beings contained in a small vessel. In Appalachia, I feel that we have a sense of that knowing that comes pre-programmed in us, because in certain parts, the paranormal doesn't come with a manual here, but it does come with oral traditions to prepare us for our supernatural existence and all of the beings that we coexist with. As we make our descent further into the Appalachian Mountains and discover these legends, I hope you'll keep me company on the trail. These legends are what make Appalachia what it is. We all need a mystery to try and solve, and these are the type of mysteries that I've chosen to take on in this life. Because the idea that this everyday reality is it just don't set well with me. Some ask me why I tell these stories. And the answer is because they ain't going to tell themselves. So, until we meet again, stay curious, my souls.
If you enjoy this kind of research, stories, spirituality, or the paranormal, then feel free to follow us on social media to know what kind of shenanigans we're up to. You can find us on YouTube by searching Mountain Mama Investigations. We are also on TikTok as Mountain Mama IMV. And you can also search us on Twitter and Instagram. If you would like to tell some stories or join in on more of our Appalachia-focused information, then join our Facebook group, Haints and Hollers. We work to do live updates on TikTok and Facebook during paranormal investigations so you can be a part of the team too. Want to ask a question or need help? Then send us over an email at haintsandhollers at gmail.com. Links and tag names are located in each podcast episode description. We appreciate your support on these platforms as we work to raise funds for our nonprofit to give us access to items and services needed during paranormal crisis and to allow us to explore historical locations and advocate for their preservation and share those with you. If you are interested in standing behind this cause, then we will provide a link with no pressure for you to donate. Did you enjoy our intro music? If so, I am proud to say that it is from an Eastern Kentucky native. If you want to hear some music that will hit you right in the soul, then check out Annalise and Ryan on their webpage. The Huffington Post states that their music is resounding from the hollers with a haunting beauty. Well said. I am proud not only to have this music grace this podcast, but to also call Annalise family. She and her husband have worked to keep the beauty of Appalachia up on our ears. Well, friends, until next time, remember, if you see a haint, give us a holler.